It's 12 noon, Saturday, June 18th, and this is Dwight Wiest in the WOR Newsroom with 15 minutes of the latest news. First, a look at the weather. Mostly fair, warm, and less humid this afternoon, with a high near 80 degrees. Present temperature just off Times Square, 79 degrees. Humidity, 56%. The wind northwest at 13 miles per hour. The temperature humidity index reads 74. The new U.S.-Japanese security treaty went into effect an hour ago, despite huge demonstrations by left-wing students trying to force the resignation of Prime Minister Kishi's government and balk ratification of the treaty. The treaty went into effect automatically at 11 o'clock. The left-wing demonstrators, flushed with victory after preventing President Eisenhower from visiting Japan, went all out in the last 24 hours to block the treaty's ratification. A crowd of 300,000 leftists swarmed around the Parliament building right up to the final moment. There was some fear that they might try to break into the building, but there was no violence. The demonstrations were not confined to Tokyo alone. In other parts of Japan, from Hokkaido in the north to Kyushu in the south, demonstrators were on the march with the largest crowd, 150,000, active in Osaka. In the face of this pressure, Kishi called his cabinet into a midnight conference to decide whether to throw in the towel or fight it out. The cabinet decided to fight, and Kishi hung on. The leftists did not take their defeat gracefully, and at this moment, Kishi is a virtual prisoner in his official residence with thousands of leftists still surrounding the building. Other thousands of leftists still are surrounding the parliament, and the socialists and left-wing students have served notice that they will not accept the treaty. A government spokesman said later that ratification of the treaty will bring the U.S. and Japan closer together and contribute to peace and prosperity. He said the treaty is supported by the overwhelming majority of the Japanese people and the left-wing demonstrators represented the opinion of only the minority. The treaty extends the military alliance between the United States and Japan until 1970. The United States, too, expressed gratification and Japanese parliamentary approval of the new U.S.-Japanese Mutual Security Pact. Immediately after word from Tokyo that the treaty had been ratified, the State Department issued a statement saying, We view this as another demonstration of U.S.-Japanese friendship. Meanwhile, on Formosa, President Eisenhower is getting a warm welcome from the Chinese nationalists. And for that story, here is WOR correspondent Bruce Palmer on Formosa. At once in all his far-flung travels of the last seven months, has President Eisenhower received the kind of outpouring of friendship, loyalty, and affection that came from the citizens of free China today. This has been a real holiday in Taipei, the first visit of a governing American president, and the Chinese have tried to ramp it up with every possible honor for Mr. Eisenhower. First, they greeted him as he drove into the city with a joyous, colorful welcome that must have touched the president's heart, because it came from both the big and the little among Chiang Kai-shek's people. And the little ones were on hand by the thousands, black-haired, black-eyed, laughing youngsters, each one trying to give the president a personal hand wave. Perhaps 600,000 free Chinese lined the motorcade route, but their natural restraint made it an orderly crowd, despite their tremendous enthusiasm. Later in the day, another half million gathered in downtown Taipei for a mass rally. And again, the evidence of Chinese regard for the United States 
and its president was plain. When Mr. Eisenhower ripped into communist China, we affirmed our support of Chiang Kai-shek and pledged renewed economic assistance to Taiwan, the crowd went wild. But the president didn't have to promise anything to earn the warmth and sincerity of the Chinese acclaim. This is Bruce Palmer in Taipei. Now back to your RKO General Station. However, Palmer told the WOR newsroom that a major policy split may be shaping up between President Eisenhower and Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. Palmer said that Chiang is pressing the president to endorse the nationalists' plans to invade the China mainland, but President Eisenhower is cool to the idea. The two leaders conferred earlier this morning. After the meeting, White House News Secretary James Haggerty said the president had promised Chiang that the U.S. will defend the offshore island of Kamoi if a communist attack on it endangers Formosa. The president's assurance of support came only hours after red Chinese artillery dropped 86,000 shells on Kamoi in the biggest barrage ever fired at the island. Meanwhile, communist China has followed up its biggest barrage against the nationalist-held offshore Kamoi Islands with a new vow to liberate Formosa. The pledge came at a mass meeting in Beiping to support the so-called demonstrations of arms against the islands. The communist New China News Agency reported details of the meeting. Soviet Premier Khrushchev has arrived in Bucharest, Romania, to attend a meeting which is drawing red leaders from all over Europe. Unofficial sources at Moscow say the Russian leader may seize the occasion of the week-long meeting for a new propaganda assault on the West. Khrushchev's intention of visiting Romania had not been announced in advance. The meeting in Romania officially was called to adopt a new economic plan for Romania. More news after this message.
Now, to communicate with your fellow man, you must take every available means, every available means that we have at our disposal. You have to thump. Hello there, fellow man. Hello. Hello out there. Hello, fellow, fellow traveler. That's a, I guess that's a bad word there. Hello there, fellow sufferer. I think that covers it better. Hello, fellow sufferer. Fellow uh, traveler on the yellow brick road. It's uh, Saturday. It is. And it's summertime. And I am wearing, if, uh, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, a nest of robins in my hair. Which, uh, from time to time, uh, is a curse of the young men of the world. It's a, it's a thing, you know. It's just like the sap rises in the veins, and the next thing you know, you're growing bark. And those long, jungle-like tendrils and shoots of the soul are reaching down into the dark, verdant soil of excitement and passion. And where are you going to go from there, then? I mean, generally, you can... Oh, you fool around, you get a hot dog, you drink a little coconut juice. Maybe you buy a hat that says Corky on the brim. You walk and walk and walk and look up at the sky. And then sometimes the, the human spirit, the spirit that lies just underneath the liver there is irrepressible. And then, of course, there's no, there's no escaping it. It's, it's this thing. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the saddest sights of all to walk along 6th Avenue or 5th Avenue or Lexington or Madison and look into the faces of the people and realize that that, that bubbling, hissing, that, that, that moiling, roiling cake of yeast that, that they used to have that, that hissed and bubbled and steamed so well when they were young no longer hisses or bubbles or steams. And they figure that this is, this is, this is uh, maturity, you know. Went to a party. Did I tell you about that, Jan? Went to a party the other day. And I got in a fantastic discussion with one of the people why is it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a party type, I'm telling you. Uh, ben Hecht made a remark in one of his books. I think it was The Child of the Century, I believe. A very remarkable piece of literature, incidentally, this book. Uh, Hecht made a remark to the effect that he wishes he could go to parties. He wishes he could carry it off, you know, and really have a good time, the way it seems that all the other people are having. He, he wishes he could, he could enter into the world of trivial conversation. This, you know, the, the constant brittle witticisms, and then the the give and take, which really is not give nor is it take, actually, of the the the, the party world. He says he he wanders through parties, and as a matter of fact, he said that the reason that he can't do this is that he has come to the conclusion that he is capable of having, he is capable of, of the experience of love. <laughs> and, and because of this, he cannot, he, he can't just be trivial with people. He has to hold on to them and, and find out. Well, this is, a, this is the worst thing you can do at parties. Uh, the, the, the worst drag at a party is the guy who, who really wants to talk about something. And when someone makes a remark uh, in the middle of, you know, the passing around the hors d'oeuvres and you're drinking the the uh, bubbling water and stuff, and, 
and somebody makes a statement, he says, well, wait a minute, I don't know whether that's true or not, you know? And then there's this electric thing that happens in the air, and the next thing you know, the word is out that, that Charlie is a real, oh, what a... Do they still use the expression wet blanket? I remember when I was a kid, I, I heard my mother using the term wet blanket. She referred constantly to one of my aunts as a wet blanket. And, of course, I'm about nine years old. And I can imagine this blanket, this sort of a blue blanket that had been soaked. And it had been soaked so many years before. And it, it had such, such a viscous fluid that it was always wet. It was eternally wet. And, and this is a beautifully descriptive term. A wet blanket. There are a few things that can kill everything, passion and everything, more than a wet blanket. Wet. Blah. <laughs> well, I guess I'm a wet blanket, you know. I've come to the conclusion that I am... Are there any other wet blankets out there? <laughs> I mean, real wet blankets, you know. This is, this is, I believe, one of the great minority audiences in the United States. We, we, we program music. If you go across the dial, you'll hear people being being serenaded from all quarters. Uh, you can find a Yugoslavian program. You can find a Transylvanian show. We have one right on WOR-TV. we got the Transylvanian Hour. Uh, we, we, we have, you can find the Croatian Hour, the Greek Hour. You can find the Happiness Hour. You can find the Make-Believe Pool Room Hour. You can find everything you want. Except, for, as far as I know, there is not a single program devoted to the wet blankets of America. A true minority crowd. Uh, those, those people uh, <laughs> who have come to the point where they cannot fully believe in anything. Fully. I mean completely all the way. Uh, completely all the way. Like the other day I'm walking along one of the, one of the well, 57th streets, as a matter of fact. And I'm walking along there and there's a, there's a friendly lady sitting in front of a friendly looking card table. And she's taking names on a petition. And, and she's got this, this, this look in the eye, you know, the, the look of the true believer. And it's just pouring out of her. And, and I'm walking along there. And she, she says, she says, you look like one of us. You look like one of us. And I said, one of what? What? She says, you look like one of us. And she grabbed me, grabbed me by the lapel, and, and, and sort of pulled me over to the card table. And I was just walking along there innocently. She says, you look like one of us. And I said, who, what, what? She said, we're signing a petition here. I said, what is it for? She says, it's a, it's a petition to eliminate unsane sanities and, and, and to, to eliminate all iniquities and all indignities and, and rottenness from the soul of man. I said, well, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm for that, I guess. And she says, here, sign here, and here's your button. And I, 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 I was handed a ballpoint pen, and, and there was a long list of names. And, uh, and I read over what I was supposed to be signing, and it turned out that what I was signing was totally, totally, imp had no relationship but, uh, whatsoever to reality. So naturally, I signed it. I'll probably live to, to regret the day. And so I wandered on down 57th Street wearing the button that said I was against all these terrible things that man has in him. <laughs> and, and I was talking about me because I'm a man and I've got them in me in spades, if I might use an old Indiana expression. Are there any wet blankets out there? I would like to talk to one wet blanket this morning. Just one. I mean, on Saturday. Uh, uh, of course, the thing is that, that this is probably the most... This is the worst thing you can be in our society. If, if, you, if you vote the wrong political party, everyone can understand that. You know, they'll argue with you about it, and they'll think there's something a little kooky about you. If you, if you go to, uh, let's say, films that have nothing but... but 
the English subtitles. You refuse to go to a film that talks your language uh, on, the, on the poor, sad, mistaken belief that anything you cannot understand, ipso facto, is good. Obviously, has a has a wonderful quality to it. You know, the uh, interesting thing about that, I have a friend who who dubs a lot of the voices for the foreign films, and she's an excellent actress, and she dubs these voices for foreign films. And uh, all the real hippies, of course, refuse to go to a foreign film that's been dubbed at all, even if it's been dubbed well. They just just won't go. They they want to hear it in the name. Of course, they get absolutely nothing out of it. And, and many of the languages are so esoteric and so, so removed from the average, the average talk of our, of our, of our world that, the, that it might as well be a Punch and Judy show you're looking at. And she said that she saw the film, one of the films she had dubbed. As a matter of fact, the film that she, she dubbed was The Cranes Are Flying. And she saw it in both versions, the one with the English subtitles and the one with the, with the spoken dialogue. And she said that, that, uh, that there were infinitely more subtleties, of course, in the one with the spoken dialogue, because people also speak, you know, as well as move around and blush and, and, and scratch their feet and all that sort of thing. And she said, yet, yet the hippies will not go to anything that's been, that's been dealt. Of course, this is all part of the mystique of, of feeling that that which you do not understand is ipso facto, uh, has more depth. Either that, if you're another type, there are two ways you approach this. The slob world approaches it this way. If it doesn't understand it, it is, it is a very suspicious thing and obviously the work of kooks. This is the way the slob approaches it. The hippie approaches something which he does not understand with great trepidation and he lays wreaths down at the foot of this enormous, this enormous marble base because he feels that if he doesn't understand it, it must have tremendous, tremendous meanings to it. Tremendous, tremendous meanings. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's just one of those, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, wor- it's the world of the world. <laughs> speaking of wet blankets, speaking of wet blankets, it's interesting to note that, uh, we have not received yet a call from a genuine wet blanket. He isn't a wet blanket. Oh no, I know his type. He confuses anger for being a wet blanket. No, the, the people who are wet blankets are not angry people, son. That is not the point we're making. There are people who are just unable to swing when the swinging is in order. That's all. The angry people who write letters to editors and who say, Ah, find a disgusted ex-listener. What about that condition of those wastebaskets along Madison Avenue? How long are we going to stand for this, the condition of the bus stops on Lexington Avenue? Every night I... No, this is not a weight blanket, son. No, 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 no. In a crowd of malcontents, this guy really swings. I'm talking about the wet blanket who cannot get mad enough to join a, 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 a protest parade. Did I ever tell you about, about this, this poet that I knew? You know, the old days that when a poet, when a poet began to make it, it was because he wrote poetry, you know, and, and, and more and more people were reading his poetry. Well, I know a poet, Ted, who made it mm-hmm. down to the village. I know a hip poet who made it and knew he made it when he was invited in, in less than a month to join as a guest marcher seven protest marches of one kind or another. He'd had one poem published in the Evergreen Review. And so now, of course, he can rest on his laurels and rest on his... I know, I know a guy I know a guy that instead of collecting clippings, instead of collecting uh, old billboards, and you know how, you, how people used to collect uh, the posters out in front of the theater where they had appeared? Mm-hmm. Instead of collecting that now, he collects uh, placards of protest marches that he has been in. Like, uh, they have just closed our coffee shop. Are we going to, you know, this kind of thing? Or, 
<laughs> protesting against the human spirit, whatever it is. And I might say that this is all included in the... And this is a part of the package. You know, we're all a package deal. Let's face it. I mean, I'm listening to a guy last night on the Long John Show, and he claimed that he had not only a, not only a, a corner on, on logicality in our world, but also a corner on goodness. And he got very sore when one of the panelists questioned him on that. He says, you know, I... <laughs> and so it wound up with a terrible fist fight, and John took it off the air and played music, and you could hear after the coffee break there was a terrible strain in the air. Speaking of wet blankets... This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Now, after all is said and done, it's Palisade for having fun. So during the day or when it's dark, visit this great amusement park. Palisade Amusement Park. Skip the father and skip the fuss. Take a public service bus. Public service sure is great. It takes you right up to the gate. The Palisades Amusement Park features over $3 million in spectacular new attractions this season. Tuesdays and Thursdays are bargain days with rides 5 cents in the afternoon, 10 cents at night. And there's always free circus acts, free dancing, free parking, and the world's largest outdoor saltwater pool is now open. You can see big TV shows telecast live direct from the park every evening except Sunday through June 25th. And don't forget... Famous star Bobby Darren will appear at Palisades Amusement Park Sunday afternoon, tomorrow, June 19th, in person at the big free act stage. You are tuned to WOR AM and FM in New York, owned and operated by RKO General. Here again is Gene Shepard. I thought the world's largest saltwater pool was just off Jones Beach. Actually, I mean... <laughs> and who's Bobby Darren? <laughs> Uh, and and, and uh, the greatest the greatest uh, bargain you ever got is a sad picture there. I remember one time when when I began to first question some of these things, I was in the army. Of course, this, you question a lot when you're in the army. It's just a, a necessity. It keeps you alive. And speaking of being in the army, there was a a fantastic item, a beautiful item. How can you get mad at at human beings really in the end when we are capable of this? I mean, in spite of being a sore, not really a sore head, in spite of being... Is there a wet blanket? Is, is there one there who was a real wet blanket? No, no wet blankets. No one will admit to being a wet blanket in our time. And the only way that I can get by with it is because I'm here in this little hermetically controlled sealed box. You, you can just bet your bottom thing that if I was out at Jones Beach sitting on a blanket and all these uh, sociable types were around, and they were passing out that friendly soft drink, and the portable radios were playing, I would not tip my hand for love nor money that I was, that I was by, by nature and by baptism, a, a, you know, a, <laughs> a wet blanket. Hello there. Old wet, how are you there, old wet, old Mr. Blanket there? Speaking of wet blankets... The, the, the word, the, the truth, the word, those strange little juxtapositions of the incongruities of life are constantly marching across, constantly marching past us. I'm, I'm standing on, hold it there, I'm standing on the curb there the other day, and along comes a cab and it says, now I do not, uh, we have a wet, hello, wet blanket? Uh, yeah, now how can you prove to me you're a wet blanket? Yes. Yes. Well, that doesn't mean you're a wet blanket. That means you have a social problem. 
No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a very common. Social problems are not necessarily that simple. Ugliness doesn't do it. Uh, no, no, you're not really a wet blanket. You just have poor technique. That could be. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, no. I could tell automatically he's not a wet blanket. He had the twinkle in the voice that shows that I can, five minutes after this guy's at a party, he's rolling on the floor, he's under the coffee table, the whole bit, you know, the giggle, the, 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 the quotation from Jules Pfeiffer, uh, the whole business, you know. It's all there. I can, I can tell it. I can feel it. It's in the air. I can tell a, a wet blanket. You know, a really, a wet blanket, a, a genuine wet blanket would not call. Let's be honest with it. No, a genuine wet blanket would say, oh, what is this guy trying to do? And everyone says, come on, it's just for fun. He says, well, all right, fun. All right, fun. I don't have time for... Well, all right, fun. Okay, let's have fun. 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 All right, we got a... Hello, wet blanket? Yes. Now, what, what are you going to do? Argue with me about what a wet blanket is? No, I didn't ask you that. I said, I want to hear from a wet blanket. <laughs> I don't believe it. You argue too good. Wet blankets just sort of stand around. Oh, come on now. You don't sound like that. Your voice has a crackle to it, baby. <laughs> you sound like a copywriter for a beer account. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. No, a wet blanket, not confused at all. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You stay tuned, friend. Right? She is not a wet blanket at all. I can tell this one. She's obviously a brownie cub pack leader. It is not a wet blanket. But you know, uh, this is this is a real problem. Uh, let's 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 level here for a minute now, old old fellow sufferer, old fellow treader upon the yellow brick road that leads eternally to the Emerald City. That secretly, deep down within the that that terrible cavern of our own souls, each one of us feels uh, as though somehow the group is making it and we are not quite making it, not quite, even at the moment of greatest swingingness, even at the moment of, 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 of our greatest ecstasy. It never has quite come off. It's never quite achieved the, the fine, thinly honed, uh, I suppose the high, shrill note of complete oneness. And and more and more in our time, it has become difficult to associate ourselves with the mass, even though more and more the mass is attempting to assimilate each one of us. Now, now there are people, there are the machine people, this is another kind of, gr uh, another kind of people, really, the machine people whose lives are very simple to them. I mean, it's just a matter of getting up in the morning of brushing your teeth, eating breakfast, and 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 going to work. This is a simple life, you know. They, they they never they never question why they go to work. They never question why they do all these things. Never, never, ever question. I, I heard a, a very inane discussion the other day about the beats, and it was one of these these simple discussions where, well, anybody who sits around they they don't do anything. They blah 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 blah. This kind of this kind of a completely. Uh, ridiculous chatter, which again leads me to believe that most people are terribly afraid, terribly afraid of their position. Why do people get angry with the beats? Well, because obviously they're living in a completely different way from so many other people.
And this, in a sense, is a rebuke to the way you live. Hardly any beat gets on the air or, or writes columns or writes reviews and writes things about how terrible people live, let's say, in the East 60s. Uh, well, how ridiculously they, they spend their evenings sitting there talking about Brooks Atkinson uh, or, or, or swooning over Mary Martin or eating olives. Uh, they, they just don't do it. And yet, yet always, we, whenever our, our position is questioned, we feel terribly insecure in, a, in one way or another. It's, a, it's an insecurity of identity. Uh, hardly anybody today can identify really with anything. Uh, the, the identity that you have with your own company is so small, so slender, so narrow, that you suspect sometimes that it doesn't even exist. There was a little line in a John Crosby column the other day that uh, gives you a kind of tip-off as to how slim our, our uh, grasp or our grip on our own identity is these days. He was writing about a quiz show, one of these quiz shows where about three or four people get up and pretend they're somebody else. Uh, they're given a false identity, you know, where, where they pretend they're someone else and they, they ask and answer the questions. And in the group of the people, there is one who is really what he says he is, you see, and you're supposed to guess which one is the legitimate one. Well, they actually have to give the people who have assumed another identity a little card that they hold in their hand so that when the, the quiz master says, and now, would you please tell everyone who you really are? <laughs> he has to look in the, in, the, in the palm of his hand and read the card because too many times in the last four or five or a dozen shows, people have forgotten who they are. They sort of, well, well, up. And the quiz master says, yes, friends, he is Charlie Brown. Oh, yes, yes, Charlie Brown. <laughs> oh, Charlie Brown. Well, uh, it's easy enough to forget who you are today. Very simple matter. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't take much work. And it is this problem, of course, that the, that the wet blankets of the world are deeply concerned with, even though they don't know they're deeply concerned with it. And as you stand in the middle of a party and you, you hear this, this constant humor being battered back and forth, it's that brittle kind of humor as though it were made out of thin spun glass. The humor really is, is one remark after the other at the expense of other individuals particularly, not, not, not uh, facets of, of man's total being, but other individuals. It's the kind of humor of many of the nightclub comics of today. That's merely another form of uh, name-calling, you know? That has nothing to do with the, with the sickness in the human soul that created this individual. Uh, I, I'm constantly getting letters from people who say, Shepard, say something about Orville Faubus. Then you'll be saying something really important. Orville Faubus. <laughs> what can you say about insanity and idiocy? I mean, my, my, my business is not to talk about Orville Faubus, but to talk about the thing within each one of us that creates the Faubuses. What is the plural of phobus? Phobi? To, to, create, to create these things. I think this is far more important than to talk about the little, the little uh, symptom of an illness. Uh, to talk about, to talk about the, the uh, let's say, the, the skin extrusion. To talk about the cold sore when there's something much deeper that's boiling down there in that old maelstrom that is inside of each one of us. Really inside. You remember Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I can remember, remember as a kid, 
I'm just this little kid, see. I mean, this is when you when you first begin to, to note that things are not exactly what they appear to be. And, of course, the child is in a very good position to do this because the kid does not have a large backlog of biases and preconceptions, superstitions and myths, which, which constantly beleaguer all the adults that I know who really believe things. Uh, they never question them because they, in, quote, their experience, have found these things to be true, quote, again, true. And so the child is completely new. He looks around and he sees these things happening. And I am not one of these, one of these poor romantics who say that the child has great insight, who, the child has great uh, wisdom in him. No, I don't say that at all. I merely say that the child is a clean slate, that he can often see things which are incongruous, which in later years he will not see as an incongruity. Not, not at all. And so you, you, you watch, you see, and, and when you see and you watch carefully and closely, you will find that, that oftentimes what passes for knowledge, what passes for lore, what passes for great uh, insight is generally a man with the largest collection of cliches, the largest collection of myths in the crowd, the greatest collection of glop. And so he just rolls it on, writes books about it, too, as a matter of fact. And that makes him even more official. And then he finally has himself illustrated by life, and then he's in. The next thing you know, he's running panel shows and editing magazines. And it just continues to roll on and on like a great sea, a great crashing sea on the rocks of the poor, sad world that we live in. But, but, but you can understand... You can. You, you, you can see it clearly and completely that things aren't exactly right. And I am not here to complain. I'm only here to say, wow, you know, we're all part of it and we might as well be part of it. Daddy-o, we might as well be. And so I'm this kid one time. See, I'm sitting there and I'm very, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm, I'm just a kid, you know, a clean slate. And I'm taken to the movies. And the movie, the, the, the picture, was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Well, you know, I mean, I'm just a kid. And so I'm sitting there waiting for the horses to gallop up or waiting for Johnny Weissmuller to swing through the vines after Margaret Sullivan. Was it Margaret Sullivan or Maureen O'Hara? No, <laughs> Margaret Sullivan, I believe. And, and I'm, I'm waiting there for, for Skippy to show up. Do you remember, do, do any of you remember when they made a movie of Skippy? I will award the Brass Pigligi with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm for anyone who can, who can remember that and, and can tell me who it is who played Skippy. You know? I remember one time when I was a little itsy-wee bitsy kid. I guess they, they don't do that anymore. When the movie came to the, to the local movie house that was so big that they, that they excused school for an afternoon so that all the kids could go see this movie. And it wasn't Skippy. It was a movie starring Tom X. And it was about Tom X and a little king. I will award the Brass Fig League with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm if you can tell me who played the little king. <laughs> and it wasn't Otto Soglov's little king either. So I'm sitting there, you know, and this is when I first began to understand this great cesspool that lies deep down within the, the you know, right underneath the surface. I'm sitting there, and it's the movie of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I believe it was Frederick March that played the role. And I, and I can remember the first scene where, where he made the great transition. He's, he's in his laboratory. Have you noticed that a, that a real good, honest... Uh, there, there, it's impossible to find a scientist today that really has guts. I mean, who, who will go out and hire an insane dwarf 
to operate his machines for him. Who really... I, I had a friend the other day who mentioned to me, he's a scientist, he says, you know, I've worked in laboratories now for 10 years, and I haven't seen anybody yet. He said, I wish I would once go to a laboratory and find one guy who's trying to put, trying to put the brain of a beautiful woman into a fantastic body of an ape. He says, <laughs> those were real scientists. I mean, they really did things. He says, I have worked in a 100 laboratories, and I have not yet once worked in a laboratory where there was a, a cavern with an insane dwarf who had great big, uh, great big flaming brands that he held up once in a while to light up the titration ceremonies. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm sitting there seeing I'm a kid. This is just in passing. And after all, it's Saturday. What are you doing? You're just sitting on your duff anyway. <laughs> a lady just called. She says her husband's such a wet blanket, he won't call you, and immediately turns you off when he heard the term wet blanket mentioned. I am now listening to you in my portable radio out in the garage. <laughs> I'm with you, baby. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. You know, the other day I came in, you find out that almost by definition, salesmen are wet blankets. I mean wet blankets. And, and you know, the guy that hollers the most and that makes the most noise, who, who, uh, who places in strategic positions the most whoopee cushions, you'll generally find is secretly... And down underneath it all, the most somber, the most tragic, and the least funny of all men. He's covering up, Daddy. He is covering up. And I'm, speaking of covering up, I'm sorry that you're out there in the garage listening to your portable radio, baby. But after all, you are out in the garage listening to a portable radio anyway all the time. Just, just by definition, if you are living with a wet blanket. Somehow, though, I must say, I identify with the wet blanket. There's no question about it. So, so I'm sitting there as a kid, and, and Frederick March, do you remember the scene? Frederick March takes a drink of this stuff. See, it's like this. He's drinking out of a cardboard cup, a cardboard container. He goes, And then he, 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 he feels this funny thing going down, going down, deep down inside it, behind his lungs and underneath his liver. And, he goes, <coughs> and then he takes it up again and it's steaming and hissing. I've always wanted to drink out of a glass of something that steams and hisses and boils and bubbles and great swirling clouds of smoke roil around my... my <coughs> Ah, ah. And this goes on for about five minutes. And the next thing I know, there is Mr. Hyde looking out at me. Ah, 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 ah. And he, he puts on his cloak. The Mr. Hyde in each one of us, I might point out, I, I really it's a superfluous footnote that I'm adding here. Uh, the, the Mr. Hyde in each one of us wears a cloak wears a dark cloak and has on a, a slouch sort of hat and usually has the collar pulled up around its ears. This is the Mr. Hyde in each one of us. Well, of course, I was terrified. Mr. Hyde skulked around and it was an awful situation until finally, well, you know what happened in the end of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it was so sad um, because Dr. Dr. Jekyll was such a nice guy and Mr. Hyde was such a complete, utter rotter. I mean, a thorough rotter. He reminded me of my algebra teacher. And so I'm on my way home with my mother, and I said, Hey, Ma, I mean, Ma, 
how come how come he could turn how come he could turn into, into this 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 terrible thing? I mean, just by drinking that stuff. And my mother said, uh, I'll never forget it. She said, Have you seen Mr. Bruner on Saturday nights? <laughs> yeah, Ma, but he's drunk. I mean, yeah. We had a neighbor who used to come home and fist fight with everything. One time he had a fist fight that lasted for over two hours with an upright piano in the living room of his home. And he used to fist fight with anything. He would he would he would take a swing at a at a at a passing stoplight. Uh, I, he would he would fight he would he would fight fire hydrants on the street. Probably his most as I said his most long the Furpo the Furpo Dempsey battle of his career was the time when he met the Strawby upright piano. And and I might say that it was a piano that perpetually had a nasty mood. And so he picked on the wrong guy that time. And he came reeling in on a Saturday night. And the next thing you know, there they were slugging it out like that. And this is an awful thing. I might point out, for the benefit of those of you who might be tempted to try it, never pick on an upright. At least an upright that's mature. And uh, so, of course, it got to be a natural and a nasty and a rotten situation. Every Saturday night, Bruner would go through this routine. And my mother said to me, do you remember Mr. Bruner? I said, yes. She says, well, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. What do you mean? He isn't a mad scientist, Ma. She says, no, but he drinks that potion. And I said, but Ma, he doesn't go out and... She says, no, that's true. His Mr. Hyde does not go out and murder beautiful young women. But it does murder fern plants in the sun parlor. I said, yeah, but Ma, I mean, Mr. Hyde, I, oh. And then she turned to me and she said, one day your Mr. Hyde will too come out. And that was the end of that. We rode on home. I was sitting on my side of the streetcar seat, and she was sitting on her side, and my kid brother was sitting behind us, and my old man was sitting with him, and we rode, you know, and just sat and read the ads all the rest of the way because, I mean, what are you going to do when you have truth? I mean, where you go? And, and of course, the Mr. Hyde in each one of us is there. You know, I'd like to point this out, though, that, that since there is a Mr. Hyde and there is a Mr. Jekyll, a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde in each one of us, the adjustment that we take, the, the, uh, the knob that we turn, presents us with an interesting choice. Some people live all of their lives showing only the Mr. Hyde to the world. Only the Mr. Hyde. This is the, this is the side of them that wants to immediately leap in a jet plane and go and bomb Moscow. Or go and blow up the Japanese. I mean, that's your show them guys who I mean, what, what are these Japanese crying out loud? And, and this is, of course, the Mr. Hyde that's in each one of us. And don't think for a minute, even the most altruistic. I was listening to this clown last night on the Long John Show, and about 4 o'clock in the morning, his Mr. Hyde started to come out. And, and, and it was a pretty nasty Mr. Hyde, let me say. And all the while, he had been making a big deal out of the Dr. Jekyll side of him, which was so wonderful, Dr. Jekyll, you know, who loved all of mankind. And so, this, this little sneaking thing, you got to remember that every altruistic everything, every, every, every little incident that occurs in the long, the constantly unfolding tape of man, is an incident that has within it the seed of the Mr. Hyde, every one. Not one dictator, for example, that I know of in the past 150 years came in, but what he didn't proclaim himself to be the, the man who owned right, 
He came in for the good of all people. I mean, we have this in our own hemisphere, down right down here in the Caribbean, you know. We come in for all people. Hitler came in claiming that he was going to do good for all people of Germany. In fact, the people believed it. This was true of Mussolini. It's been true of every great movement of this sort. And always, 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 somewhere along the line, somebody says, and there it is, there it is, stalking the streets again. Speaking of stalking the streets, how can... Well, if you're going to be stalking the streets tonight, uh, I would like to suggest that if you're going to make the village scene, oh, Mr. Hyde, <laughs> wet blankets. Uh, I, I, know a, I know a place where they cater to wet blankets. In fact, there are a couple of places. Uh, the, the one that I think that's... Uh, well, if you're looking for some place to eat tonight after the theater... I would like to recommend Ying and Yang at 82 West 3rd Street, right in the heart of the village. Now, it's not hard to find. And one of my friends, who is a famous Chinese artist, I will not, I will not use his name, uh, a famous Chinese artist who is also a renowned gourmet, a couple of days ago heard me talking about Ying and Yang, and he says, okay, and so this is this is a true incident, and he took his friend down to Ying and Yang because he wanted to know, you know. This is a real Chinese uh, gourmet and a man who knows Chinese food. So they sat down and they ordered, and one of the things they ordered, by the way, was, it was this is this is the way that the, the conversation went. He ordered something. It was for lunch. They didn't go down there for dinner. They went down for lunch. And he's sitting with his friend, and the friend said, and this is, this is a strange comment. He says, oh, he says, you know, these guys on the radio. He says, this, this is somehow we suspect guys who talk, but we don't suspect guys who write. Why is this? Uh, why do we have such a great respect for print? Somehow print is more honest than talk. Have you noticed that? That, that, that if somebody makes even a vapidly, even a vapidly uh, significant remark, he's hailed as a great man. If you said it on the air, oh, come on, get off of it. Who do you, how, do you, how does this guy get off with saying this stuff? We suspect people who speak, and the reason we do is that when we hear the human voice, it breathes. Listen. <clears throat> it cracks. It clears its throat. And in short, is devastatingly human. Because it is, we suspect anything that it says. And when we see something on the printed page, it is inhuman. The page is paper. The print is ink. It does not breathe. It does not cough. It does not scratch itself. It does not pause. And so somehow we feel more secure with this thing. And hence, we respect it more. If we were to hear Aldous Huxley, for example, talk and tell his stories, we would not, we would not even listen for five minutes. If, if we were to listen to James Joyce, for example, if James Joyce had spoken Ulysses on the radio, he would be forced to sell Coca-Cola. If, if T.S. Eliot had spoken his, his cantos, between each canto, he would have had a, a burger beer spot. And so on and on, and of course, he would have been suspect too. We do not believe, we, we really do, we suspect the human voice. But nevertheless... Uh, the guy who was with my friend said something to the effect that, well, uh, I, 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 these, these chicken wing Shepherd talks about, <laughs> I mean, they can't be this good. Well, they hadn't ordered chicken wings. 
And the waiter heard them say this. So without saying a word, he goes back to the kitchen and he tells the cook, I want one order of chicken wings for a couple of wise guys. And these people did not uh, identify themselves as being friends of mine or anything. So they brought out an order of chicken wings and says, here, this is for you. Here, chicken wings. And they were absolutely flabbergasted. And in fact, uh, my friend, whom I hadn't seen in months, called me up last Friday and said, uh, in fact, it was yesterday. He says, I just wanted to tell you, Shepard, I went down to Ying and Yang, and it is what you said in spades. And this is from a Chinese, a famous Chinese gourmet and artist. So if you would like to try a Chinese, an oriental restaurant that really does make it, I mean, it really comes up to that feeling you have before you sit down and eat, I would like to recommend Ying and Yang at 82 West 3rd Street in the village. And they're open tonight until 10, 11, 12 o'clock. And incidentally, they're open on Sundays until, oh, I think something like midnight. And they open at noon. They have a nice little bar, and it's a superb restaurant. Just get into any any cab and say, you know, uh, make it 3rd Street in the village, 82 West. And it's Ying and Yang. Oh, yes, and another thing, they still continue the, the, uh, the custom that they have set up, and that is that 15 cent, 15 percent of their income every Monday night is given free to an orphanage in Macau. Uh, this is an orphanage where young people who have fled the Chinese, the red Chinese regime, uh, have to go from the mainland. And this is Ying and Yang, 82 West. Speaking of cabs, I saw a cab named the In-Law Cab. It was a terribly unhappy-looking cab. Very, very aggressive. Speaking of aggressive, this is WOR Radio, your station for news. Here's one minute of quiet jazz with the compliments of Schaefer Beer. What do you hear in the best of circles? Schaefer all around. People all have found the pleasure. Are tuned to 710. This is WOR AM and FM in New York. It's here, and the critics are raving. It's the story of Ruth, now at the air conditioned Paramount and Normandy theaters. A lush religious extravaganza shouts the New York Post, and the World Telegram acclaims it lavish, massive, one of the most durably famous stories of them all. Get the whole family together and see the story of Ruth, now at the Paramount and the Translux Normandy. W-O-R, AM and FM in New York. Rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. Catch this swinging guitar.
it's, <clears throat> excuse me, madam. It's, it's just like this 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 beautiful call we got about ten or fifteen minutes ago. This this very British voice of a very shrafty sounding lady says, "Would you please tell Mister Shepherd that uh, I'm a damp rug." <laughs> She kept using the phrase damp rug. And, <laughs> gee, that conjures up beautiful pictures. A damp rug. I, I, that, in, in many ways, is much more colorful than a wet blanket. You know, speaking of uh, of damp rugs, as long as we might as well... I mean, we might as well level here. It's, it's Saturday, and this is Class D time. So we might as well sit here and flick the pebbles into the pool... And and there are there are signs though. Now let me say this: there are signs that are almost unmistakable. Now I say almost because man is constantly being. Did you hear what happened last night out at Comiskey Park? Uh, Stan Lomax was telling me during the news about what happened, and unfortunately I missed it. But out at Comiskey Park in Chicago, they had this gigantic scoreboard. And it is a, a new scoreboard this year, and it's caused all kinds of talk. It's a great sensation. And the way the scoreboard works is this, that whenever one of the White Sox ball players hits a home run, the thing lights up like an enormous pinball machine. In fact, they call it the pinball machine all over the league. It lights up like a tremendous pinball machine, and, and it has great big neon spirals that go, and it has a... It has a, a set of fireworks that shoot off Roman candles out of the top of it, and the whole thing explodes. The White Sox have, have hit a home run. Pow! Boom! The thing just goes goes mad. And, of course, when the opposing team hits a home run, nothing happens at all. Except one thing, and this is something they haven't talked about. When somebody hits a home run, this machine groans when, it, when uh, say, one of the Kansas City Athletics hits one into the upper deck at right field. The machine goes, <laughs> Well, last night, last night, I would never have believed the Yankees capable of this. For, for one thing, I, I suspect that the Yankees all vote the straight Republican ticket. It's a, it's a, this is a Republican ball club. This is an organization man's team. If there ever was one. And uh, what happened last night was, was thoroughly un-Yankee-like. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened. They were going into the third or fourth inning, and somebody hit a home run. Mickey Mantle uh, drilled a home run, and there was a moment's silence. And, of course, the White Sox scoreboard didn't do anything except register another home run. It groaned a little bit. And then suddenly, out of the dugout came the Yankees carrying sparklers. <laughs> and everybody is burning a sparkler. Big cheering and hollering, sparklers are being burnt. And, and the entire crowd at, out at Comiskey Park rose as a single man and recognized that they had been outployed. And they just burnt those sparklers away there, and everybody cheered, and that was the end of it. And, of course, the manager of the Chicago White Sox was teed off about it. And uh, Tony Cuccinello had his hat stolen. He says, this is the biggest Bush League town in the league. <laughs> and it goes on and on. The whole, the whole conglomerate mess builds. And then when you see a thing like this happening... Just occasionally, a little thing will happen. You know that there that there is some hope. There is some hope for. How can you get mad at man when? The, listen to this news note. Did you see this this item in the Herald Trib? I mean, you know, you can you can get teed off. Speaking of being teed off, 
have you noticed how the uh, how the great sweep of demonstrations is beginning to take hold everywhere, all over the world? Demonstrations, every place you go, there is a demonstration of some kind. People are out marching with placards. Well, I think this is a direct result of the technological world that we live in. There's nothing to do. Of course, if you you can always say, "Wow, I mean, the, this little political reason, that little political reason, this economic reason, that economic reason." You can go on and on and on and on and on. No, no, I think that much lower on the uh, scale of uh, psychological operation, much, much lower, way down deep underneath it all, you are going to see an increasing amount of demonstrating. Uh, demonstrating because somehow it gives a man a sense of taking some sort of action. Most people don't take action in their world, you know, in a technical world. They live in a committee society where all things are decided by the big machine. And when I say the big machine, it's in capital letters, whether it's a big automatic machine or whether it's a big human machine. The point is that hardly anybody ever today feels the satisfaction of actually creating something that makes him indispensable for the moment. In other words, he makes a shoe, or he 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 makes a pot, or he he makes something out out of the soil with his own hands. He he grows a piece of he grows a a piece of vegetable. Uh, even farms today are becoming great corporate enterprises, and so the farmer is a hired man who operates a hired machine that he doesn't even own. And it's uh, the whole the whole world is getting to the point where it is almost impossible for a, a man of the great mass of men to get up and say, I did it. And so you, you are presented with this, the situation where uh, a couple of months back there was a demonstration that broke out in one of the European countries, a great wild demonstration where two or three people were killed and uh, guys, were, guys were marching all over the place and they were advancing on the city hall and students were throwing eggs at one another. And it turns out when they finally quelled it all and squirted everybody with water and said, now what is this all about? Nobody w knew what they were what they were demonstrating for, and in fact, they were not demonstrating for anything at all. They were just demonstrating to demonstrate. Now, what is the psychological reason for this? Why do people do this? Don't don't come around to me and say, "Well, they just wanted to let off steam." What does "let off steam" mean? You see, what does that mean? Where do you get this head of steam? Well, a man used to be able to let off steam, you see, in a lot of different ways, like make things and make decisions even, uh, run his own little world. But today, uh, the, the world is getting pretty much out of the hands of people, and it's getting to the point where to, to let off steam, he's got to demonstrate, and he will, he will fill in any, any kind of a line. He will fall in and, and, and start raising placards and start shooting because it gives him a chance to do it, gives him a chance to say something. Even if he, and incidentally, the demonstration, the mass demonstration, is a real product of our time, where hardly anybody is capable of demonstrating alone. He has to demonstrate with a group that even when he's expressing himself or being angry or, or letting his, his emotions fly, he has to do it with a large number of other people around him. We are truly mass men today. That, 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 uh, that the idea of a of a Jonathan Swift demonstrating by himself, or, or a Voltaire demonstrating against society by himself and getting kicked out, is is uh, just passe. You're called an idiot or a nut if you do this. And and it's a fascinating thing, this whole subject of the demonstration today. Not that I'm against or for what people are demonstrating for or against. 
I merely say that the demonstrations today have taken on a weight of their own that have nothing to do with uh, what people are demonstrating for. And it's a fascinating thing. I, I know I know many guys today who 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 just who who would be who would be perfectly and completely almost gelded if <laughs> if there wasn't something they could be angry about. In fact, uh, I know large numbers of of uh, comics, people who write things and who are who are supposedly humorous people, who can't be humorous at all about people or the world and the situation in which people are, just as normal living beings, but has to have to have individual causes to be angry about. And once once that that cause is disturbed, I've often wondered what would happen to most of the comics who are touring the nightclub circuit today if the Democrats got elected. <laughs> If, if Adley Stevenson say God, God, then you'd see a sudden rash of, of of sick Republican comics. It would just be the same flip over. It's, it's it's all part of the same mystique of the demonstration, and much of the the uh, comic world today is based on the feeling that the man in the crowd has today that he must demonstrate. He will attach himself. His greatest cause today is a non-cause. He will demonstrate for non-causes much quicker than he will demonstrate for causes. And the whole business of demonstration is a very interesting thing to me, and I'm not against action. But demonstrations are not actions. They're merely that, demonstrations. It's a fascinating thing. And, and uh, the demonstrations sometimes are completely illogical. Uh, the other day I'm, I'm down in the village and everybody's demonstrating about the fact they closed a couple of coffee houses. And uh, one of the guys has got a great big sign about about politicians. He's, he's maintaining that <laughs> it's all a political deal and so on. I, I stopped him and I says, what, what is this about? And he says, why are they closed? Huh, man, man, like, get in here. Come here, get in there, man, like they're tromping on human freedom, like, man. And they're, 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 they're you see, they 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 close the gaslight like they said it's a, it's a, what, what, you know. And I says, well, now wait, calm down, man. What, what, uh, what is this about? He says, well, it's a fire chief, like it's the squares, man. I mean, with the hippies, oh, God. And I says, now wait, now calm down, man. What is it about? Now just what is it? Well, 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 what do you mean, what's it about? I says, what is it about? He says, well, like I said, it's a fire trap, man. Like it's a trap, man. It's a trap, man. And I says, well, now, just a minute. I've been in these places, and they are fire traps. <laughs> and he says, well, I, 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 I says, now, just a minute, you know, that guys who run taverns uptown and even guys who run churches uptown, if it's a fire trap, they get closed. It's nothing to do with human freedom. They just don't want a lot of people to burn up. And it just goes on and on. Of course, what I saw in the end was that the demonstration itself was fun, and uh, it it was it was all all part of the 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 gradual pressing down of the individual to the point where he can hardly say anything, and so he has to. I, I have a feeling that there must be a little company out in Jersey somewhere near, perhaps near Tenafly. Uh, this this seems to be a good a good neighborhood for that kind. Uh, out there near Tenafly, there must be a little factory that does nothing but turn out protest placards of all kinds available in job lots available for uh, for immediate use or available in custom use for future protests you can buy you know you know you can buy protest placards today that are completely ubiquitous that will fit any kind of protest and i can tell you this that if 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 400 of us we ought to do this some saturday would be wonderful wouldn't it be great to organize a protest out at jones beach and and about 400 of us just quietly marched down the beach wearing wearing swimming trunks, carrying signs that say, How long are we going to stand for this? 
<laughs> and I, and I'll, I'll tell you, within 10 minutes, 100,000 people would join us, and another 100,000 would be throwing tear gas at us. <laughs> How long are we going to stand for this? And everybody suspects somehow he's putting something over on somebody. Either that or somebody's putting something over on him. So a sign like that would both infuriate and at the same time assuage people. He could all just fill in the blanks. You know, how long are we going to stand for this? And uh, speaking of that, how long are we going to stand for this? This is WOR Radio, yes, your I mean. station ah, for ah, news. Ah. Grand Union presents a gigantic beef sale with savings up to 30%. All Armor Star and U.S. Choice quality beef. All your favorite cuts of steaks and roasts. So stock your freezer while this exciting Grand Union sale lasts. You'll save up to 30% on top quality beef. You'll save stamps, too. Save cash and stamps at Grand Union and Sunrise Supermarkets. Hi, this is Nat King Cole. Come on, let's do it. New Yorkers after the show do it. Out of towners in the know do it. They all enjoy Rhine Gold beer. You notice bandsmen at breaks do it. Supper clubbers eating steaks do it. They all enjoy Rhine Gold beer. No other beer. Is like Rhine Gold. It's refreshingly dry, clean, clear, refreshing, and the bright taste tells why so many millions of chaps do it. Even Mona Lisa may perhaps do it. So do it. Enjoy Rhine Gold beer. Rhine Gold is New York's largest selling beer. This is WOR, AM and FM in New York, and this is Gene Shepard. What a fantastic coincidence. Immediately after I do this thing about demonstrations, on comes a commercial for a giant beef sale. <laughs> think you got beef, man. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of beef, let's see, we got a thing here. I better, better do it. Uh, Ingmar Johansson defends his world's heavyweight crown against Floyd Patterson next Monday. See these two charming, hard-hitting punchers square off in the championship fight at the Polo Grounds. All seats reserved. Choice tickets starting at $10. <laughs> Available now at Johansson Patterson Box Office, Hotel Astor, Times Square. The choice seats start at 10 bucks. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll be here until... Oh, yes, we have another one here, too. Uh, if you are going to make the village scene, I would like to recommend tonight that you drop into the paper book gallery. Funny thing, uh, gradually it's beginning to acquire momentum. It's, uh, I was, uh, I won't even remark it. Uh, why, why, why justify it, you know? Why, uh, why, why give it the dignity? But, uh, the paper book gallery, in case you haven't visited it, visited it, edited it, is one of the, uh, one of the few places in town that you can go, uh, late at night and, feel like there is real life and it's just happening and it doesn't cost a nickel and it's really and truly something to see and to feel if you're coming in from out of town you'll get a kind of feeling of a certain area of let's say the texture of a certain area of new york life that you will not to my knowledge find anywhere else uh the paper book gallery that we're talking about is one of the really large paper book establishments in the east and 
has undoubtedly one of the greatest collections of paper books to be found anywhere in the country. But that's all beside the point. There is much more to the paper book gallery than the product they sell. Uh, there is a kind of feel to the air. That's all I can say. It's it's there, and uh, I can't I can't say it any better nor clearer than that. But the paper book gallery, there are two of them right now in operation. One of them is on Sheridan Square. It's on the west side of Sheridan Square, going downtown. As you come down, it's over there on the west side of the square where 10th Street hits uh, 7th Avenue South. It's a beautiful little shop, and you have to go down about four steps into the basement, and there it is. Uh, This is the paper book gallery right on Sheridan Square, almost directly opposite Nick's. You know, Nick's in the village. It's almost directly catty corner across the street there. And uh, the other paper book gallery is over on 3rd Street, and it's only a couple of doors away from uh, Ying and Yang. It's on 3rd Street. It's uh, right back of the new the NYU campus. It's about, uh, oh, I'd say about three doors away from uh, Ying and Yang, which is at 82 West 3rd Street. Now, both of the galleries are open until 2 o'clock this morning. In other words, if you're looking for a place after the show or something, you just, you just want to kill a little time and be alive a little bit, uh, before you get something to eat or after, you will find the paper book gallery will be open until 2 o'clock in the morning, and it really is a place to go. Let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, oh, we're pretty well ahead of the game here. You know, speaking of being ahead of the game, uh, the, 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 the quality... You know, this day, I, I have to say something about this day. I am riding in a cab about... Oh, two or three hours ago when I'm coming into the station here, and there's a, there was a warm, a genuine summer feel to the air. And a kind of yeastiness to the air. Really was. Uh, the, the, all of Times Square was loaded with those people in those flowered print dresses, and all those, all those people riding in the buses with the green windows, looking out, gawking out, and taking pictures with their brownie cameras. And there is that, that kind of a, syrupy quality that you get when you really are in summer. Not spring, but summer. And I, I'm just kind of kind of absorbing it. And I don't know whether you were out in the rain last night, but that was a true summer rain where the rain came pouring down and I saw a gigantic bolt of lightning hit the top of the Empire State Building. It just hang there for about 30 seconds. It seemed to just hang like a great big coat hanger. This huge bolt of lightning just <laughs> playing around the tower. And, and the, the whole Fifth Avenue area was lit up, and it was a beautiful shower. I was wet to the skin, and I loved it. It was just a, just a wonderful moment. And it had been such a long time since I'd really been caught in something like that, really fighting against the wind. And, and leaves were coming down, and a couple of these uh, walks safely uh, with the green light signs were blown off of the... The uh, telephone poles next to me and flew past, and it was just just one of those wild, alive things. And I, I was there for a moment, and and I, I immediately thought of something I hadn't thought of in years. Uh, we we live lives, of course, that go on all the time. Your life does not stop; it does not cut off, uh, and and operate. Many people think their lives, incidentally, operate sporadically. That uh, between the times they are alive. They spend a lot of time just doing things like uh, working, like toting barges and lifting bales and getting a little drunk and landing in jail and so on. And between, between the moments of life, there are these great, great areas of emptiness. Whereas, as a matter of fact, 
the life is being lived all the time, just this great, this great moving pattern that we are all creating as we walk along over the wet sand does not stop. There are no breaks in it. And each moment is absorbed, rejected, uh, integrated, correlated, and all the other adulated words all poured into one. And, and, and as you move along, uh, it seems to me that quite often maturity is called the process of losing perception, losing perception and the ability to react to the things around you. This was part of the great argument I had with this fellow the other night. He says, why? He says, you learn after a while that you, you have a niche and, and, and you don't, you, you shouldn't fight really against the things that seem to be unfightable. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is really not maturity to me. This is a form of death. <laughs> if, if, you, if you lapse into this, this uh, tapioca pudding state, which most people call maturity. But I'm, I'm standing there in this fantastic rain that came driving down for about ten minutes last night around ten or ten-thirty. And the old lightning's playing around the top of the Empire State Building. And the cabs were skittering sideways. And that, that rain was rolling along Fifth Avenue on the asphalt like a great, like a great bowling ball. Shh. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. Have you ever seen a roll of, of, uh, of barbed wire, of new barbed wire? Silver new barbed wire. Uh, well, that's that's the, the 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 look that it had, as though a great roll of silver barbed wire was charging up Fifth Avenue in the general direction of the expensive sixties, and and it just swept past and through me and all around me. And I was remind, reminded of something which I had not thought of. And I said to myself, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, Saturday. I have to. Have any of you ever heard of a fish out? This is a Midwestern thing. And I, I'm sure, well, of course, it's not really, let's put it this way, it is, it is part of river life. Have you ever lived next to a river? Let me tell you what a fish out is. It's a true summer thing. And in a way, it's kind of an affirmation of the soil and being part of the soil. And I find something very intriguing to me. And it is this, that, that many of the people I know who are purely urban people do not have any genuine feel for the relationship between man and soil. Now, I'm not talking about soil. I'm not talking about the guys who move out to Westport and have a garden. This is not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the guys who go to Darien and dig their own swimming pool or make their own fish pond. This is not at all the relationship of man and soil because it's done as a game, you know. These people who grow their little gardens, who, who become gentlemen farmers in Bucks County, are doing it as a game. It is not a necessity. So the relationship of man to soil is, it's like a man who has a, who has a hunting preserve, who has a flock of, of, uh, of quail put in, and then in the morning he goes out and shoots them. This is not hunting. Something else entirely. I don't know what it is, but it's not hunting. Do you know what the term hunt means? Hunt. Look it up. Hunt. To search for. <laughs> and you're not searching for anything, buddy, when you let... 14 quail go out of a cage and you pop them one after the other like clay pigeons. This is not hunting. And, and the, 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 the fish out that I, I've been part of on two or three occasions is part of the mystique of man versus nature, man part of nature, and that's more important, you see. We like to think of ourselves always in opposition to nature. We constantly hear the phrase, man is finally conquering nature. Ha! Huh. What are you talking about, conquering nature? We're part of nature. That's ridiculous. <laughs> we can't conquer ourselves. How can we conquer nature? 
It's ridiculous. We are as much a part of nature as the, as the merest turtle and snail. We are as much part of nature as that, as that raindrop that came charging down Fifth Avenue last night. There's no, there's, there's no escaping our, our nature. There's no escaping our, our clay. There's no escaping our, 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 our terrible charging red streams that, that move through us at such a, such a hot, steamy pace. There's no escaping. This is all part of it. You cannot be anything but what you are. And so, so I, I remember last night when this rain is charging. What does this remind me of? And it reminds me of the cookout and the fish out. Not the cookout of guys who stand in, in backyards and, and do little things with anchovy paste. This is not what I'm talking about. That ever so often, people who have a real remembrance of the relationship of man to soil, man to nature, in other words, have to go back and reaffirm this. There is much of the druid in every one of us, believe me. There is much of the pagan who worships at the foot of the unimaginable things that grow around us. There's no question about it. It's always there, this lurking little thing. And I remember the, the last fish-out that I was ever involved in. Let me tell you what a fish-out is. A fish-out is a thing which kind of grows from the banks of a river like a mushroom on a hot July night. And mushrooms you can see grow. Have you ever watched mushrooms grow? Have you ever watched an asparagus? You can watch asparagus growing. Are you aware of that? You can stand right there and see it come right out of the ground, and I am not kidding. This has nothing to do with Walt Disney and stop-action photography. You can stand and watch the asparagus come up out of the ground. And once you've done this, you can never really go back. And once you've done it, will you see that the asparagus is growing as of a necessity and as of part of the battle, you can never go back, not as part of the game. If you've ever stood in the middle of a celery field outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan, there, you, you, can't, you can't retreat. If you've ever walked through a cantaloupe field in southern Indiana and smelled those ripe melons, oh, and, and watched them and felt them, and eaten a hot, ripe melon that weighs four pounds that you pull right off the ground and put salt on it, and it just pours out all over your pants when you open it up, uh, you, you know something about the soil. But the thing... The thing that I remember about the fish out is this. The river has just the way the sea has to us here on the eastern... Of course, the sea is a remote thing to many of us. It's a remote and yet a constantly attractive thing. But the river is not remote to the people who live in the river valleys. The river is as much a part of their lives as their shoes are, as their socks are, as all the, the cruddy little things that we live with. As, as, as the buttons that come off and as the, the, the bread that we eat. These are the things which are the texture and the real, the real blood of the lives that we live. The, the moments, the turning on the light switches and the turning them off, the sleeping, the sweating, the drinking water, all of these things are the little things that we do to maintain our lives and that have their own, their own artifacts that are part of them. And so it is with the river. The river is really a part of the life of the people who live in river valleys. And I spent some time living in the great Ohio Valley, which is a great bowl out there in the Midwest that, that touches upon Ohio and West Virginia and parts of, parts of uh, Kentucky, and it just moves on through Indiana. It's a tremendous valley out there that is drained by this great river, the Ohio. And into the Ohio come all these other rivers, the Little Miami, and there are hundreds of rivers that flow in to this great river that moves slowly and just, oh, so, so, 
just just oh so everlastingly through the lives of these people. And the the fish out is a kind of affirmation of the faith. The faith and the knowledge, the secret knowledge that we are all part of this this thing. We are just as much a part of it as the leaves are. Even though we like to pretend all the time as we walk up and down Fifth Avenue that we are not. You see, when you live in 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 juxtaposition of a great moving river and you can feel time moving, believe me, because every minute of the day the river changes. Every every hour the river is either moving towards winter or moving towards summer and you can't escape it. You know, we can forget time almost completely in the city. If you live in a in one of these great office buildings that's totally air conditioned, there are no seasons. It is always just the right temperature. The time sort of ticks away endlessly with great quiet clocks set flush to the wall. And it's an abstract completely. It's just a series of numbers. And so you walk out into the city at a certain point and, and you step into a cab and the cab moves along a, an asphalt street and you see the fountains playing. It can be winter, summer, fall, spring. It matters not really. And you, you, you move into a, your own home, which in itself has a kind of soft, cushiony, air-conditioned world about it, too. You turn on the TV set, and certainly this is a never-never land. It's, it's, a, it's an on-film land, and those shadows move back and forth. And people forget, you know, <laughs> they forget that they are growing old, really. They forget, they forget a lot of things. Maybe they want to. Maybe this is why it's all been created. That's probably true. But you can't ever really escape it. And so the fish-out, which is a river function, is a kind of affirmation. It's a druidic rite, a true druidic rite. And I remember one time, the first time I knew and learned of a fish-out, I was, I was working, it was late. It was about maybe 10 or 11 o'clock, and I was just about ready to leave the job that I had been working at. I was hot and sweaty. I'd been working all day and all night. And, and the guy I left the, uh, the office with says, I'm going to a fish-out. And, and I said, what do you mean? Is that why you're wearing those crummy clothes? And he says, yeah, I'm going to a fish out. And he had a kind of, he had a kind of rapt expression about him. It was 11 o'clock at night. He says, come on along. I said, okay. And so we drifted on down to the river about eight or ten blocks down. And then we went upstream about four miles upstream, driving his little car. And we arrived at the fish out. And it was dark, just as dark as the as the ace of spades, black. Have you ever seen a river at midnight? Oh, boy. Hardly hardly few things are blacker, perhaps, than the soul of man. And uh, we arrived at where the fish-out was being held, and I could see bonfires down there on the shore. And as I, as I approached these bonfires, there was a strange kind of excitement began to grow inside of me because I knew this was not a barbecue roast. There just wasn't the barbecue roast air about it. And down on the shore, there were 50 or 60 or 100 men of all colors, black, brown, green, all, color, all colors of guys. Not, hardly any of them knew each other. They had just been drawn together. Somebody had announced there was a fish out. And they came from all parts of the county. And they had drifted down to this one spot on the bank of the river. And the old river just flowed. And they were all men, men. And they were wearing old, old chino pants and old, old old blue jeans and old jackets and things. And already they were talking in those monosyllables that men talk in when they are really reduced to basics. 
Give me, give me, give me, give me the axe. Rah, bah, chop, chop, chop. Give me the axe. Rah, rah. And they're chopping away. Go down and get some wood. Hey, hey, anybody got any water? Get, get, get a bucket of water. Okay. This is the monosyllabic man, you see, who does, who does not have to have the, the, uh, the many syllable words that describe the subtleties. There are no subtleties there. You see, we are down at a druidic and religious rite. And, and, and I began to see, playing against that river like the fires of hell, there were about seven or eight big bonfires, and on each bonfire was a copper, a huge copper wash basin. You know the kind that, that grandmothers used to boil wash in? And they had a, they had a cut-off, a cut-off uh, uh, broom handle that was all worn and all whitened because of the boiling water, and they used to stand there and, and uh, move this great big old handle back and forth while they boiled the shirts. Well, they had about five or six of these great big copper tubs that were on little heavy metal grills placed over these huge flying, flying embers and flames, and they were cooking, and they were cooking. Each one of these tubs was filled with grease that somebody had brought down from the hills, and there were great tubs of this boiling, hissing grease, and they were preparing, they were preparing the scene. And back in the, in the, uh, in the bushes that rose up to the sky, of course, this is black, absolutely black. There weren't, there wasn't a single artificial light there, just the light of this, of these bonfires. No one uses flashlights on these, these fish outs. They had great big casks of bread. People had brought bread down. And out in the darkness, I could hear voices. And the guy said to me, let's go down and look at the lines. I said, what lines? He said, come on, man, let's go. And we walked down on that muddy bank, and you could smell the river. You can smell the river at this time of the year. Do you know what the river smells like in early summer? It, it, has, a, it has something about it. It just it, it makes, your, makes, your, makes your mind practically go blank. It is so green and so froggy. It is so alive and so rich and ripe. And you can smell that mud, and you can smell that water, and you can smell those bullheads moving along on the bottom. He says, "Let's go out and look at the. Let's go and look at the lines." And so we walked down. We walked maybe four or five or six hundred feet downstream, and downstream you could see all these dark figures moving back and forth, absolutely black, stygian black, and they were laying the trap lines. Well, the trap line, in case you're not familiar with it, is a is a piece of twine. Thick twine, white twine, cotton twine, that maybe is uh, oh a hundred yards long, perhaps something like that. A hundred yards, I would say, and it has strung along it hundreds and hundreds of little lines that extend down, and at the end of each one is a weighted fish hook, and each one of these fish hooks is baited with a dough ball, and at the end of this trot line is a weight, is a weight, and on and on another line that extends from that weight is a great big gallon jug that is empty, that has a cork in it that's sealed and is used as an enormous bobber. And the way these trap lines are set is, is, a, is a sight to see. To see a man who really knows how to, how to throw a trot, you are seeing a man who really has, has, has completely integrated himself with the, with the horizon that he knows. The trot is laid this way. The guy swings it over his head. And at his feet, these great coils of, of twine, all very carefully laid out with the fish hooks, all very carefully celebrated, <laughs> celebrated in each his own right, celebrated and laying there quietly shining in that moonlight, and, and, and lying there all 
very, very carefully laid out so that they don't tangle one with the other. And then he goes, and as he does this, he plays the line out gradually until suddenly he lets it go at the backswing. And that great big old jug curves beautifully and out, 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 out over the river until finally way out you hear that. And the line sinks and his trot has been set. And they lay maybe four or five lines like this along the river bank. All these men, and hardly anybody knows each other because, you see, the point being, again, it's one man and, and another man. It has nothing to do with who you know. We are all men. And they all speak in these, these monosyllabic, monosyllabic grunts. Give me, give, give me the axe. And so you have five trot lines laid. And everybody drifts back to the fires, and you can smell the grease. The grease is really boiling and bubbling. And someone begins to tap the kegs of beer. They have four kegs of beer, three of which are always in the river to keep cool. And the other has been dragged up on the rocks and has been bunged. Have you ever heard anybody bung a keg of beer at 2 o'clock in the morning on the riverbank in a hot, steamy summer night? Oh, it's fantastic. It goes... Give me, give me, give me, give me the you hear him trying to stick the bung in there. And then he draws one. It's just fine. And then it begins to work. And everybody's drinking out of tin cans, lukewarm beer, and they're waiting. And then finally one of the guys gets up and he says, about time, let's go, Charlie, let's go. And about nine guys, along with Charlie, dark figures against this dancing flame, go downstream and they begin to pull in one of the trots. Hand over hand, they pull it in. And it's heavy. Oh, boy, it's heavy now. Hand over hand, they're pulling in this great, great weighted line. And one by one, each hook comes out, and on each hook is a, is a, is a big flopping catfish. And, and as he pulls it in, one guy grabs the catfish and he pulls the hook out and throws it into a tub until finally they have completely defished this enormous trot line, and they have a whole tub full of flopping catfish, some of them weighing as much as 20 pounds, others as little as a pound or so. And, and two or three of them grab the tub and they struggle and oh, oh, let's go. And, and, and as they, as they moved, as they move upstream, the other guys, the other guys are getting ready with the, with the little wooden tables that they brought down to clean the fish. And you should see seven or eight guys cleaning fish by the light of the dancing fires on a riverbank. It is like some scene right out of Dante. You can hear the fish flopping and the guys are saying nothing and they're working away. And you can smell the blood and you can hear the knives going. And as they clean each one, one guy takes it and, and, and washes it off in another big tub, and he throws it in into this great big boiling, hissing, steaming cauldron of flaming grease. Until maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you have a great big wash tub full of deep-fried fish. And the way they're fried, by the way, they don't fry them whole. They fry them, they, they deep-fry them till the fish fall away from their skeletons. And great, great mounds of fish flesh, all beautifully crisped and fried, lie at the bottom. And they drain it out and they scoop it out and they put it on pieces of bread and they just sit around there and eat. They sit around and eat and drink beer. Well, this goes on all night. All night. Because it always begins on a Friday night, the fish out. All night. And the guys are drinking beer and they sleep. They don't go home. They sleep and they lie on the riverbank all Saturday, drink more beer and eat more fish. They start all over again Saturday night. 
Their whiskers are growing, and they're speaking more and more in short, curt grunts. And, and as they as they as they approach Sunday morning, which is very very two three o'clock in the morning, they are complete savages, and it's a fantastic experience. You're down there eating the fish. Give me more fish. <laughs> and your whiskers are growing and your clothes smell like bullhead and smell like dough balls and smell like river and smell like mud and smell like people. And you just... <laughs> and you go on and on and on and on. And by this time, there are about 200 guys involved. Other guys have caught, in, have caught in wind, you know, of the big fish out that's going on down on the old Ohio. And there's about 100 of them lying out in the bushes eating fish and grunting. <laughs> And, and they're all colors, all shapes, all sizes. It means nothing. They're all battling the same thing, the river. And then, as, as, it, as it dawns Sunday morning, what a sight. Three days, guys have been down there. They're whiskers. They're, their eyes are blurry from beer. They've been eating fish. And there's, there's a kind of a genuine Neanderthalic quality about them. And then, one by one, they gradually drift back to civilization. Grunting off into the off into the jungle, Og goes. He goes back into the jungle, and it's impossible to explain to women. Let me tell you that, impossible. You arrive back in the city, you're driving through the streets, and it looks like some some peculiar wild fantasy land that has no relationship to reality. These streets. I'm telling you what happens. You get back and you go to the house. I remember I was living and I had this landlady. I had this little room, and I arrived at the front door. She slammed the door on me. I said, it's me. <laughs> me. And she opened the door, and she says, what? It's, it's you, Gene. What's happened to you? I go, out of my way, woman. <laughs> I threw her down to the rug. <laughs> and I went stomping upstairs, leaving a trail of mud behind me and worms, catfish, all sorts of terrible, awful, slimy things that grew in the river. <laughs> And I, and I lay in the tub, and I squirted hot water on me, and I shaved, and gradually it came back, and I got just as phony as ever. Within a half hour, I was, I was reading Variety and the whole business. <laughs> oh, what a world. If you'd like to fly to Coop, man, I'd like to recommend Lufthansa. <laughs> the Germans know about fish-outs. <laughs> oh, what a gas. I would suggest you find out about this. <laughs> Contact your travel agent, and if you're going to make it real good, man, make it Lufthansa. Fly the jetway. <laughs> Lufthansa, German-American Airlines. They make it. <laughs> oh, it's coming back. Oh, boy, I, I, I'm beginning to smell fishy now. Yeah, here's some beer. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow night at five after nine. If you got any guts, you'd be here, too. <laughs> Over WOR Radio, your station for news. (laughs) Say, listen, the reviews are in on the story of Ruth and just listen to the critics' cheer. The best biblical film ever made, says Parents Magazine. It's 12 noon, Saturday, June 25th. This is...